I invite you, brethren, to turn in your copies of the Scripture to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Our text today will be verses 1 through 13, and then I'm going to read four verses from Ephesians 6, uh, verses 1 through 4. So we'll begin with Deuteronomy 31, verses 1 through 13. Here again, the very words of God. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites and their land, when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you, that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord God, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess." And now from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we continue our study in the covenants that you have made with the patriarchs of the Old Testament, as well as with your son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf, we thank you that these covenants teach us so very much and how faithful you are to your people. And as we have heard already from Uh, Daniel's prophecy, how that all the nations will come under the dominion of Jesus Christ, we give thanks that that promise is coming to pass even in our sight these days, despite the troubles that 
so easily beset us. Father, we thank you that you govern all things, that your sovereign hand brings all things to pass by your decree, and that your spirit is doing that work in great measure, though often our unfaithful eyes don't see it. Open our eyes that we may see it, Lord. Open our understanding to your word that the the covenants that you've made are covenants that were down to our benefit as well, even from the old covenant. And this we pray in the mighty name and for the sake of our King and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, brethren, today's message will have three purposes. First, I want to show the importance of both positive and negative sanctions that flow from the Mosaic Covenant. I promised that last week as we looked at, uh, for the first time at the Mosaic Covenant. And if I am correct in my assertion from last Sunday's message that the Mosaic Covenant is an everlasting covenant, then the sanctions, both positive and negative, given in that covenant are everlasting as well. The second purpose of today's sermon is to emphasize in our thinking the historical transition of the history of God's chosen people moving from a family to a clan and then into a kingdom as the beginning of the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. Let me say that again. The second purpose for today's sermon is to trace the historical transition from a family of believers under under Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to a clan that grew into a kingdom while in captivity in Egypt. Then I want to link the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and that will be done in a much great, to a much greater degree after we consider the Davidic Covenant, which we'll start to look at next week. I hope to do that in one week, but it may take two. And then, of course, the following covenant, which is the New Covenant, the covenant with Jesus Christ that uh, we so greatly appreciate and benefit from. So, uh, that, that will be the, the outline for today's sermon. First, uh, to deal with the uh, sanctions, both positive and negative from the Mosaic Covenant. Then, uh, the transition from a family of covenanted people to a kingdom of covenanted people. And then, lastly, uh, trace the, uh, the linkage of the Old Covenant uh, uh, covenants, if you will, to the New Covenant. All right, let's deal with the uh, sanctions. When I say the word sanction, we often think of negative things, don't we? We think of, in our families, we have sanctions with children. Uh, There's often temporal punishment for disobedience, right? That's a sanction. Uh, We outline the the boundaries of obedience, and then when they break the boundaries of obedience, a, a sanction is imposed. What about good sanctions? If you do your chores, what happens? Sometimes you're rewarded for that, aren't you? That's a positive sanction. Well, all of those reflect what God has done with his own people in the Old Testament, and it's most clearly designed in the Mosaic Covenant. However, I think probably the best way for us to look at that uh, distinction, the Old Testament sanctions being both positive and negative, and to see how much more important they become in the Mosaic Covenant that I want to contrast the Mosaic Covenant to the covenants that have gone before, the Adamic Covenant, the uh, Noahic Covenant, and the Abrahamic Covenants. Okay, so let's go first to the Adamic Covenant. Uh, 
There was one sanction specifically expressed in that covenant and one sanction implied. One sanction implied. So we all know what the the negative sanction was. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was the ethical requirement, what would happen? You will surely die, God says to Adam and Eve. You will surely die. Well, did they die right away? Careful how you answer this one. The answer is yes. Though we, we, we think of death as just the cessation of life in a body. Well, the Bible talks about death as separation from God. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden prior to their sin. But after the sin, did he walk with them in the garden? He did briefly to impose the sanction. And then after that, they were expelled from the garden, the place of paradise, weren't they? And angels were put on the, uh, at, the, uh, at the, uh, the door, if you will, or the gate of the garden to keep them out and to keep them away from what? What specifically were Adam and Eve kept from? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or excuse me, the tree of life. I'm sorry, I misspoke there. Please forgive me for that. The tree of life, the tree of life. And then, of course, if you've read the Bible through, and I hope you have, if you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. You can skip to the last chapter. You can do that in any book, can't you? Because sometimes that kind of ruins the story. Uh, But you can skip to the last chapter and find out that mankind is given access to the tree of life again. That's what redemption's all about. From, From the fall of the earliest parts of Genesis to restoration at the end of the book, the Bible, God is about bringing redemption and restoration to being, to pass. That's what it's all about. And so that life is restored in its fullness at the very end of the Bible when access is given once again to the tree of life. But there, in the Adamic covenant, we only have, excuse me, my mouth is very dry today, not sure why. The expression of a a sanction only is attended to eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. However, there is an implied positive sanction in the Adamic covenant. Is is there not? If you obey this covenant, if you don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what's the implication of that? You'll live with God's blessing, right? You'll live in God's blessing. So that's an implied sanction. They already enjoyed that in obedience to God. If you disobey, the negative sanction comes to bear, but the implication is, if you obey, things will remain blessed in that covenant. So let's move then to the Noahic covenant. Adam and Eve didn't keep the Adamic covenant. They broke it. They were separated from God, and eventually their bodies would die as well. But in the Noahic covenant... We have very few sanctions spoken of there. Uh, There the sanction was for death again if someone were to take the life of another. If a man or a woman took the life of another man or woman, what would happen to them? Their life was to be taken as well. And that's the, the, the significant negative sanction in the Noahic covenant. One could argue, I suppose, that disobedience to God's uh, revealed will Brought, brings about death in, in, on a large scale too. When the, when, the, when the earth was covered in the deluge 
everybody died except for those people. And I was reminded, I said last week, so I, I confess I made this error last week. I said seven people lived in the ark. It's actually eight. It was Noah and seven of his family. So I appreciate that correction. I failed to do that last week. So uh, I, I want to assure you I, I have read the whole story, and it is eight people. Uh, so I suppose you could argue that part of the covenant, Noah's covenant actually wouldn't have come to pass absent that huge negative sanction with the deluge. But that's not spoken of specifically in terms of a part of the covenant in Genesis 9. What is spoken of is that a negative sanction or capital punishment was to be imposed for taking the life of another. And again, a positive sanction was inferred. If you don't take the life of another, you get to live in, with God's blessing, his common grace at that point. Uh, there are special graces given to special people as well. Uh, but at least there's an implied blessing there or positive sanction as well. But very, very few things said. Then we come to the Abrahamic covenant. And there, this has often been called the covenant of promise. I mentioned that two weeks ago when we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of promise. And this covenant, instead of focusing attention on negative sanctions, focuses attention on positive sanctions. Think about this for a moment. Two very specific promises were made, which, and both of which were positive sanctions for keeping that covenant. Those promises being Abraham would be the father of many nations and Abraham and his seed would receive a special land of their own. Uh, that he would be father of many nations. We find that in Genesis 17, 4 through 7. And that they would have a special land of their own in Genesis 17, 8. So unlike the preceding covenants, the Abrahamic covenant emphasized the positive sanctions of obedience in contrast to the negative sanctions of the Adamic and Noahic covenants. But again, very little was said about sanctions, right? Some, some things were said, but not much. But things changed dramatically in the Mosaic covenant. When we get to Moses, there's reasons for this, and I'll explain that in greater detail when we get to the second part of the sermon. But there's a dramatic change in the Mosaic Covenant, both in terms of ethics of the covenant and the sanctions associated with those ethics. The dramatic difference is the amount of ethical requirements and the level of sanctions imposed, both positive and negative. Consider that the previous three covenants of the Old Testament, that's the Adamic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, and the Abrahamic Covenant, Consider that those three covenants took a little over five chapters to describe in the Bible. A little over five chapters. While the Mosaic Covenant takes three separate books, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and a part of a fourth book, the book of Exodus, to describe to God's people. And of those three and a half books, a full 20 chapters deal with sanctions associated with keeping or breaking the covenant. So the mere size of this covenant and the sanctions involved with it far surpass the amount of, of uh, revelation 
that God gave on the first three covenants. Well, why did God spill? I'm going to say this is a, a phrase that comes from, from literature. Why did God spill so much ink on the Mosaic covenant? Don't, don't mistake me. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is, why did God spend so much time drafting this big covenant? Why did that happen? The ethics and the sanctions of this covenant, in contrast to the three previous covenants, are immense. Well, I'll answer that question in part now, and then in part in the next section of the sermon. Consider that until this covenant, God was dealing primarily with a very small community of people as his chosen people. A very small community of people as his chosen people. From Adam to Jacob, the number of faithful believers was very small, wasn't it? Very small. That changed when Jacob's 12 sons went to live in Egypt. God's covenanted people grew enormously. Now think about this in regard to how Christ describes his kingdom. What's his kingdom like? It's like leaven that you put in flour and you knead it together and, and then you put it out to what? To germinate, right? To grow. And that leaven grows. And the next morning, I've seen this happen in our house. My wife makes bread. She put that leaven in a lump and the next morning it's overflowing the bowl that it was in. Because that, that leaven just grew and grew and grew. That's what the kingdom of God's like. Was it like that in the Old Testament? You start with a little leaven and then it grows and grows and grows. The answer is yes. God's kingdom grows like that all the time. We just don't see it. it isn't it like a wheat field that grows up? And how much wheat is harvested then? Let me use... I used to do a lot of growing. I don't do it anymore, especially with all the snow. I may take up some growing this, you know, this spring. But a, 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 just one ear of corn, this isn't wheat, this is corn. Let me use this as an example. One ear of corn. How many kernels of corn are on an ear of corn? Anybody ever, did you ever take the time to count those? I haven't. I've seen some estimates. It's anywhere from 500 with a small ear to over 1,000 or 1,200 with a large ear of corn. Imagine that. But if you were to take each one of those kernels and plant that in a field, let's say there's 1,000. Let's keep the numbers easy. I hope this is easy. The average stock of corn has immaturity has four ears on it. Okay? The average stock of corn has four ears on it. So you take a thousand, you multiply that, it, let's see, say each seed grows to maturity, has four ears on it. How many ears of corn is that? Four times a thousand, right? So it's 4,000 ears of corn times a thousand kernels of corn on each ear. Do you see how exponentially that grows? And then if, if just after one season, if you were to, if you could, of course our kernels of corn are, are made, are, <laughs> they're different now. 
If you have, if you have, uh, well, I, I'm not going to get on it. If you were just to keep that for one year and that, those seeds and replant them, do you see how that exponentially grows? Do you, you ever wonder why so many farmers plant corn? There's the answer. There's the answer. It's huge. That's what the kingdom of God's like. Well, at the first part of the kingdom, there's just Abraham, who has one son, Isaac, who has how many sons? Two sons. And then Isaac has how many sons? Or Jacob. How many sons does Jacob have? Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Then Esau, or <laughs> Jacob has how many sons? Twelve. And then it blossoms, doesn't it? So you go from a family to a clan. I would say by the time you get to uh, uh, Jacob, it's a clan because you've got these 12 who all have sons and daughters and, and their families grow. But then they move to Egypt and then what happens? It blossoms. A clan grows into what? A kingdom. It grows into a nation of people. Michael Belknap's done some research on this, and I would, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, Michael. You can talk to him about this, but one, one scholar has written these words about the growing of the clan. According to Exodus 12, 37 through 38, the Israelites numbered about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. This was by, in Exodus 12, 37 through 38. Plus the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude and their livestock. Well, the mixed multitude are other people who had, had either been enslaved by the Egyptians that were considered part of this group of people, the Israelites, or people who had, confer, uh, con, had, uh, uh, had uh, converted to Judaism while in Egypt. We're not sure how to categorize them completely, uh, but the Bible calls them a mixed multitude. Numbers 146 gives a more precise total of 603,550 men aged 20 and up. Why age 20? That was the age uh, that they could become part of the military. These were, these were men aged 20 and up. So the number was 603,550 men, plus wives, children, the elderly, and the mixed multitude of non-Israelites who, who are estimated to have been total, in total, two to two and a half million people. So remember, the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years, and that was according to God's revelation to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 17. Your people are going to be enslaved for 400 years, and at the end of that 400 years, I will deliver them out of that slavery, and it's estimated that they numbered men, women, children, elderly, mixed multitude, two to two and a half million people. Marching ten abreast, and without accounting for livestock, they would have formed a column 240 kilometers long, or 144 miles. Two and a half million people. As of the year 2010, 
A study done by Xavier University estimated the population of greater Cincinnati, which includes northern Kentucky, to be 2.13 million people. So Israel at the time of the Exodus was roughly the same size in population as greater Cincinnati in 2010. That's how big a clan, the clan, had grown in 400 years. Now why do I... Why do I even care about this? <laughs> I want you to see what God's doing with his covenants. How would such a population function without some form of government? If they're going to be delivered from the Egyptians who governed them, and they would have to have their own government, how are they going to do that without some kind of government being formed? Remember, they're going to have new institutions that they didn't have before. The institution of religion, if you will, or the church, if you will, they're going to have to understand how to honor God in worship, unlike what had been done while they were in captivity. My guess is they were very limited on what they could do in captivity. Now God wants them to worship in the right ways. They're going to need to learn how to do that. How are they going to deal with one another in a society? How are they going to... Laws of justice and equity, how are they going to be crafted? And who's going to do the crafting of all that? And what, what are they going to look like? We've got two and a half, up to two and a half million people that are going to start a new nation from scratch. From absolutely nothing. How is that going to happen? With a population of sinful men and women that size, some kind of judicial system would have to be employed. The Mosaic Covenant was just that system. Moreover, it was a covenanted system whereby true justice could now be known and meted out for the benefit of all men and women. And if you read Deuteronomy 7 and 8, you'll find that one of the purposes of God bringing about this covenant is to, is to call, cause jealousy with the other nations. The other nations will look at Israel and say, this truly is a blessed people. Their laws are just. Their ways are good. This is a people that God has blessed abundantly. That was, it, they were to be a witness to the world when this was all said and done. God had given these ordinances and laws, and therefore they were by definition just and righteous, because God is the personification of righteousness. And when he gave his law to Moses, which was the covenant, summarized in the Ten Commandments, and where was that Ten Commandments kept? In an ark. Where did we hear that word before? Where eight righteous people were saved from God's judgment. An ark is a place where righteousness is kept in the Bible. His laws were neither too harsh nor too lenient because they came from God. Both the laws... Uh, that were to be kept, and the punishments for breaking those laws were righteousness, being neither too harsh nor too lenient. 
And God had given those laws to Moses and his chosen people at just the right amount, with just the right amount of specificity so that true liberty would be maintained under God's revealed word and at just the right time. When did they receive those laws? When they left Egypt. They were a covenanted people to God. They were delivered. Okay, God says, you need to know how to live as a society. And I'm going to tell you how to do it. So our passage today from Deuteronomy 31 teaches us that the people of Israel were to carry this covenant in the ark, which reminded the people that salvation for the human race was brought about by God placing mankind in an ark. And here in Deuteronomy 31, the covenant was placed in the ark, and it too would point to the way of life, abundant life, to those who would embrace the righteousness found therein. Therefore, it was to be read every seventh year during the Feast of the Tabernacles, the year of release. <laughs> the year of release, what was that? Well, every seven years, people were to release, be released from indebtedness. Think about this, brethren. This is important. How many of you are indebted? I don't want to see a show of hands. I know what it would look like. But in God's economy, every seven years, you were to be released from debt. Completely released from debt. Now what does that teach us? That God is all about not slavery. His... What does Jesus say about his yoke? My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, now I'll ask for a show of hands. Who would like to be released from debt every seven years? <laughs> of course you would. <laughs> and then if you had sold your property every 49 years, the 50th year, you were to get that back too. Did you know that never happened in Israel? There's no evidence that they ever recognized the year of Jubilee. But God was gracious to his people. Gracious. I'm going to re release you from debt. And then if you had to sell your property for some re reason, every 50 years you're going to get that back too. Do you see how gracious God is? This, this law, which was summarized in the Ten Commandments and put in the ark, this was not a burden. How hard is it to keep the Ten Commandments? And you say, well, Pastor Hickey, I, you know, I have trouble with at least two or three of them every week. Well, of course you do. But I mean, otherwise, if you think about it, is this really hard stuff? Only worship me. That's it. No other gods before me. Don't make any graven images either. And don't take my name in vain. All right? So watch your speech. Watch your attitude and the way you act. Everybody's with them. Keep the Sabbath day holy. By the way, that was a sign of the covenant. Why? Because every seven days, you get a day off. You don't have to work. Right? Isn't that a great? That's a gracious God. In my, in that, I'm sure they didn't have that in Egypt. Did Pharaoh give him a day off every week? I doubt it. But God gives you a day off every single week. And not only that, if you violate that, that's a capital crime. In some instances. Do you understand how important this was to God? He took a day off. Do like I did. Conform yourself to my image. That's what he's teaching us. 
I could go through them all. We're going to go back to one of them, the one that has the promise. We're going to see that in just a few moments. But you understand God is giving them a law that's not hard to keep. And in fact, his, Moses' last words to the people of Israel found in Deuteronomy 32, verses 45 through 47, this is what we read there. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel. And he said to them, set your hearts on all these words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. Now hear this. For it is not a futile thing for you, the words of this law, it's not a futile thing for you because it is your life. It is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. The law of God is your life, brethren. Now, it doesn't produce righteousness. It doesn't cause salvation in your heart. But when you act this way, you preserve life. The Scriptures ask us, or tell us, to love our neighbor as ourself. How do you do that? How is it that I love my neighbor as myself? John, in several places in his Gospel, as well as in his epistle, says, keep Christ's commandments. That's how you love your neighbor. You don't take his possessions. You don't covet his possessions. You don't dishonor him by taking his wife in an adulterous relationship. You don't bear false witness against your neighbor. You don't kill him. And you honor God by worship him, worshiping Him and Him alone. You don't make graven images. All of these things. That's how you love your neighbor. You act righteously. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden's light. Well, I haven't talked about the sanctions much. I, I, let's see, what's, how's my time? No, I don't have time now. I commend to you. I commend. There are, there are 20, nearly 20 full chapters in the Old Testament that talk about the sanctions of obedience, the positive sanctions, and the negative sanctions for disobedience. And I want to commend to you just one chapter where they're pretty much all summarized. And that's in the book of Leviticus. And it's Leviticus, it's in my notes here, bear with me as I fumble through this. 26, chapter 26. I commend that for your reading this afternoon. Chapter 26 of Leviticus talks about the blessings that come upon God's people for obedience and the the curses that come upon God's obedience or comes on God's people for disobedience. So take some time to read that. Those are the sanctions. But I need to move on. So you understand that what was a small family of believers grew into a clan of believers, which grew into a great nation of believers. And that nation was then given their own land, and they were given a society, and they were given the means by which to govern that society. That was the whole purpose of the Mosaic Covenant. I am building a kingdom. Now I want to start drawing some, some, uh, that thread that I've talked about from the beginning of this study. 
the thread from the Old Testament to the New. I want to spend some time doing that and then, uh, then we'll move on next week to the Davidic covenant. In our studies through the first four covenants, we've seen from the scriptures the continuity and perpetuity of each of the covenants. Continuity and perpetuity. You understand what those words mean. Continuity means that they all, they all work together, one to the next. Perpetuity means they don't end. There's no ending to these kinds of covenants. And when we get to the new covenant, the, the new covenant makes the whole thing blossom. And I'll show you that in a few weeks. So let's go back to the Adamic covenant. Though broken by Adam and Eve, it was restored by the Noahic covenant. There's a continuity. There's a broken covenant that gets restored with Noah. Fill the earth and subdue it were the responsibilities of Adam in the first covenant. And don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because he did the latter, he put at jeopardy the former. Wasn't the creation cursed because of that? It was. God says, I'm still going to take care of my creation. And even though mankind went far off the rails between Adam and Noah, God cleansed the earth with the flood and reestablished his covenant with Noah. There's the continuity. As was already said, the Noahic covenant restored the essence of the Adamic covenant in that Noah and his posterity were to fill the earth and subdue it. And what God had begun at creation was not to be abandoned, but was to be accomplished after the earth was cleansed by the great deluge. God then added a new dimension to the foregoing perpetual covenants when he established his covenant with Abraham. By faith, Adam would become the father of many nations and kings But that was not realized because he acted against the covenant. Adam did. But Abraham acted in faith, didn't he? And what was he promised? He was promised that he would be the father of many nations and kings would come from him. Not only that, his posterity would inherit a special place known as the promised land, the land of Canaan on the farthest eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. That would be where God would establish a new people for himself that would blossom into many nations and that would bow their knees to God by faith. This too was an everlasting covenant, a perpetual covenant for perpetual generations. And we saw this in Genesis 17.7. The Abrahamic covenant has not ended, nor will it. Then last week and this week, we've considered the Mosaic Covenant in light of the partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic Covenant. God had promised to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Well, is there more than two and a half million grains of sand on the seashore? I would say that's a very small seashore. Right? So it still has to get bigger. And I, I, you know, you could go to the creation and find out an estimate of how many billions of stars there are in the sky. How many billions. So it's not that big either. And yet, it's a partial fulfillment. 
How do we know that? Well, just look at the size. It's a new nation. The people of Israel is now a new nation after the Egyptian captivity. And so God's building on these covenants. There are still some unfulfilled things from the Abrahamic covenant, aren't there? Many nations, I'll make you the father of many nations. Well, so far, we've only seen one nation come out from that covenant, the people of Israel here at the Mosaic covenant. Many nations, that still has to get fulfilled at that time, right? And what about kings? Are there any kings in Israel yet? No. Not that we have seen, not yet. Next week, we're going to see kings in Israel. The Davidic covenant, that's the next major covenant. But brethren, it doesn't come to its fullness until Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we're going to see that familiar, uh, that fulfillment in the coming weeks. I want us to understand when God builds these covenants, not only is he building covenants for the purpose of a keeping the promises to individual people, but he's, this thing's blossoming. It's the kingdom that's growing. Of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be what? No end, the scriptures say. The prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 of Christ's coming to this earth, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Let's keep that in our minds as we work our way through these covenants. Let's pray.